Uh, Tanya Yankee just checked in with us, and just, she'll be here in just a moment on the line. Tanya Yankee, by the way, let's tell him, uh, Craig, once again, her husband Terry was the uh, police officer with Oklahoma City Police Department, was the first into the building after the bombing. And the first uh, to die of a questionable suicide afterwards. That's a year later. A year later, he was found dead where? Uh, in a field two and a half miles west of El Reno Reformatory, a mile out into this field. His car was abandoned along a dirt road, and there was a lot of blood in the car. Uh, hardly any blood at the scene, it, it turns out, we found out later. And uh, he was shot through the head. No gun was found, but it was real suicide. He also had 13 cuts and lacerations and uh, on his body, on his wrist and elbows and, and jugular veins. And, and he, they called it suicide. And they, and they, they, they wrote it off as suicide. Mm -hmm. Well, and I understand, was he about to release a, a, a book? or? A... Well, no, He but he had gathered a lot of information, and he was taking it out of town to hide it in and, and some mini-storage someplace out west of Oklahoma City that he had. And um, we don't know if he managed to ever hide the stuff or not uh, because he never came home. Mm. And Tanya is his uh, ex-wife at the time. She has two children by him. And uh, he had gone, gone to her and asked her to be remarried. Oh, I see. That's right. Uh, because they wanted, uh, he wanted her to be covered by his insurance and his pension because he knew something might happen to him. Mm. And he was real adamant about it. And, and we'll let her tell you know, yeah. all of that part. But uh, uh, the, it's an obvious case of, of torture, uh, murder, and it was written off within minutes as a suicide. And uh, just, uh, it was ridiculous. And, and if, the funny thing was that the Canadian County Sheriff's Department, I think it was, was the first ones on the scene. And hey, well, hang on just a second here. There she is. All right, now you are. Uh, you confuse me pushing all these buttons. I have confused me over here. <laughs> it looks like the bridge of the Enterprise yeah. up here. Well, now she's on. Good morning, Tanya. Good morning. Well, I, I've given them a little bit um, of, a, of a preview in the first hour of the case itself, just the basics of uh, what happened and what you know what you can do. We've got an hour, and what we uh, what you can do is kind of fill us in on on you know where you were at, what happened uh, through your perspective, and especially uh, what happened to you. You know, it, not only during uh, the time of, of uh, the bombing and shortly after, but all the way up until, like, today. So why don't you start with, uh, 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 let's, let's back up just a little bit and take five minutes first and tell us that, you know, Terry was the first officer in the building. He probably saw some things uh, that uh, were dangerous for someone to see and remember and know, and he began working the case. And why don't you just kind of take it to there? What did, what did he tell you? Well, um, it actually started the day of the bombing that he had made some uh, strange statements that uh, at first I wasn't able to uh, really put into any kind of logical order. Um, but later on, it began to make sense why he was making these comments. Um, I picked him up. I got a call about oh, 11.30, maybe 11.15, the morning of the vomiting from Presbyterian Hospital. Um, they said Terry had been injured, and I needed to come down there and get him. Um, in that two-hour time, I'd been trying to find him. Um, his, uh, his computer in his... Uh, police vehicle was not uh, working, nobody could get a hold of him, nobody seemed to know where he was, so I was really concerned because uh, I knew he worked that area early in the morning, so I was concerned um, and was relieved to get the call. So I uh, went down there to Presbyterian Hospital, picked him up. Um, the strange thing was uh, his first statement that came out of his mouth was, get me out of this hospital, no matter what you got to do, get me out of here. Um, I said, okay. Um, uh, he's very adamant. I, I didn't know at the time that um, I've been told later that he was threatened at the hospital. Uh, I didn't know where the source of threatening came, uh, but that's, that's what I've been told later on, about a year after his death. Um, as soon as we got in the vehicle, um, and Terry had injured his back carrying Randy Ledger out of the building. Uh, Randy was a large man, probably uh, almost 300 pounds, and he had fallen through some rubble. Um, so he couldn't even walk, couldn't sit up. And uh, as soon as they loaded him into the car, uh, he got very upset, um, started to cry a little bit, and said, uh, Tanya, it's not what they're saying it is. They're not telling the truth. They're lying about what's going on down there. And um, I did try to press him a little bit, ask him questions, but he didn't seem very willing to talk about it. Um, it, it was just kind of a, a comment, you know, it's not what, it's not what they're portraying it to be. Um, and from that point on, uh, it was about two or three days later uh, after the bombing, he had asked me to take him down to the site. 
Um, and mind you, Terry couldn't even walk. He really was not in any shape to go down there. Um, but he kept insisting we needed to go back down there. Uh, said that we needed to go at night when we could not be seen. Um, and people would just recognize us easily. And I didn't understand the reason for that, but I didn't ask a lot of questions either because he just he just seemed unwilling to give a lot of information. Um, we did go down there uh, probably between 30 10 o'clock. And he said that we were going to go look underneath where the daycare had been. Um, there was something he wanted to see under there and get a picture if possible. Um, as we went down there, um, we were stopped. And I can't remember which personnel it was, but I know definitely it was either ATF or FBI. I just cannot recall what the uh, name was on the back of his jacket, but it was one of the two. And... Um, Terry had attempted to badge his way through, and the guy told him no. Um, and he said something a little more specific, like, uh, you know you're not supposed to be back down here, something along the lines that made me realize the two of them recognized each other, and the interaction was very antagonistic. Um, I think had I not been with Terry, he would have said a little more to the man, um, and maybe been a little more forceful about getting through, but it seemed like he thought better about it since I was with him and we left. And then he uh, asked me as we got in the car that I not be seen down at the site. Um, and mind you, I worked a, a job that uh, might require me to go down to the site, um, but I did not because he was very adamant that I not be seen down there at any point in time. Um, the, the entire year after that, was uh, lots of strange incidences, uh, lots of strange comments from him. Um, about 15 days after the bombing happened, I got a call from his supervisor, Lieutenant Joanne Randall. And um, she's being pretty hostile, uh, pretty aggressive, and um, asked me where Terry was, told her he, he was not there. And she, she said, uh, you tell Terry that if he doesn't get that other report in, um, that he's going to be reprimanded if he does not get that in by the end of the night. Who was this? This is Lieutenant Joanne Randall, mm -hmm. and this was his uh, his supervisor, direct supervisor at the time. Now, um, let, me, let me give you a little filler in there. Um, in this time frame, Terry had written a nine-page report. Um, I know that he wrote a nine-page report. I saw it. This is the only report, however, that I've ever asked him to read that he did not let me. Um, I, I didn't understand the reason for that at the time. It was, you know, I've, I've ridden with my husband, you know, on ride-alongs. We, we talk a lot about what had happened at work. You know, I've, I've read reports about the prostitutes on Nines of Francis, you know. Just meaning that nothing was really all that sacred. You know, if I asked about it, usually he was pretty forthcoming in telling me about it. Uh, this time it was an absolute no. He didn't want me reading this nine-page report. Um, and that's an awfully long report. I don't ever know. <laughs> Uh, too many uh, police incident reports that are that long, but his was. You, as you look back on that, do you find that as a, his way of protecting you by making sure that you didn't have that knowledge? Uh, that's what I believe. That is what I believe. At the time, it was strange to me, but uh, two years later, it, it comes into perspective really clear that he did not want me to know, have any knowledge of what was going on down there. Okay, so now she wants a second report. She wants a second report. And like I said, this is not hearsay. I got the call. I know what she said to him. Um, he had told me, and I want to say it was maybe, oh, about the 11th or 12th day that he had um, came into the house and was really upset, just mad, um, said that they supposedly lost his first report. It was just missing. Um, he was furious. And um, another thing that it was very unlike him that he would not keep a copy of the report but I think because he had been injured and probably was not expecting that the report would come up missing, I think he probably would have made a copy under normal circumstances. Um, but he seemed offended, and he had said that she wanted him to write a much shorter report. It, you know, it needed to be one page. Um, he was being dictated, obviously, what to write in his report and being told to take a lot of things out. Now, now, now people have to understand that when you turn a report in, the first thing it does, it goes to, to, to your supervisor, then it goes to records division, and they make multiple copies for various locations. So to lose the report, the supervisor would have to lose it, or they would have to go to these multiple locations that they know the report's at and get rid of all the reports. Right. Now, 
They want a second report. That lends me to believe that they want a different report because they've already threatened him by now. Yes. And so now they say, that's not the report we want. You'll write it, but you'll leave out such and such. That's my theory. Right. Okay, go ahead. And, and I'm, I agree with that um, uh, for certain reasons uh, of other things that have gone on. Um, I know Terry was being uh, threatened with disciplinary action all over the place uh, for lots of things concerning the bombing. They won't fess to this, but this, in fact, was occurring. Um, and the report was the first thing that I know about that he was threatened with disciplinary action. Um, okay, I'm trying to get my train of thought here. And, you know, jump in, ask me any questions you want okay. as I'm going along. I'll, I'll help you on this since I know the story. Not, not as well as you, but fairly well. Let me ask one quick question. Tony, have you ever told this story before on radio? Yes, I have. Oh, you have? Yes, I Did have. Did you have any reaction from it? I'm sorry? Did you have any particular reaction from it? Particular reaction uh, as in threats, uh, yeah. telephone problems, takeouts, whatever. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I've gotten used to it over two years. You know, it, it doesn't seem so new to me anymore. Did you do this at an Oklahoma City station? No, I have not. This is the first time I've been able to do it in any Oklahoma City radio station. Oh, in any Oklahoma station at all. That's correct. Oh, well, I see. it's always been on uh, shortwave and national stuff, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. In other words, a very limited listenership. Are you, uh, did any stations turn you down? Would they not let you tell this story? or? Uh, when, uh, when Terry's death first happened, um, and I had to do a lot of digging to find out what happened to Terry, okay? Mm. Um, I, I was really kind of armed with some vague information at the time, mo most, mostly because of how the body... Uh, actually was when it was found, what the location it was found, just the whole story itself was unbelievable. And I had not pinpointed it all to the bombing until about a year after. I was still kind of gathering and, and kind of blindly <laughs> uh, searching my way through it. So, um, yeah, that sounds like maybe you had some of the same problems Karen Silk would have. Yeah. Now, getting getting uh, getting on with with uh, you, you know, you mentioned to me that uh, Terry had come to you uh, on probably more than one occasion and said we need to get remarried so you'll be covered by insurance and pension and all this for the kids. Yes. Okay. Um, we we had been divorced at that time. Um, it was about two weeks after his, uh, before his death that he suddenly became very afraid. Um, very anxious, very nervous. Um, I would not say suicidal, um, just afraid. And he would come to my house at strange times of the night, unannounced. And this is, if you knew Terry Yakey, you'd know how out of character this would be. Terry was a polite sort, uh, very respectful. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't even come over unless, you know, you knew he was coming in advance. But here he was coming up at my door 2 o'clock in the morning, 3.30 in the morning. And uh, he was telling me that he was going to get his insurance papers uh, all put together and make sure that I had them. Um, he wanted me to leave in the middle of the night with him right then. He said, we need to get remarried. Uh, don't ask me questions. This is the only way I can make sure you and the girls are taken care of in the event that something happens to me. But that never happened. That never happened. You never, you never got the, the paperwork or, or it was never done? No. Uh -uh. Okay. Because it was... Uh, it had started, like I said, two weeks beforehand, and he was very vague in what he said, and I, I spent several hours trying to get him to tell me what was going on. Very frustrating, uh, but it was obvious that there was something going on. I don't believe he was suicidal, but two days before it, um, he showed up again, and he did something very strange. He tossed a VCR in my car, did not explain why, um, said that he needed to get these insurance papers to me, and, and left, said he would be back. Very upset. Um, 48 hours later, he was dead. It was the last time I ever saw him. Now, you said VCR is in a machine or a VHS tape? No, a VCR machine, okay. an entire right. machine. Okay. Which, like I said, if, if, if it were you, you know, you'd think, what in the world? What, what, what is he doing? It wasn't a, it wasn't a camcorder. It was a v, VCR. It was like VCR, and there had been a tape in it, but I had not watched it. The VCR came up missing within 24 hours. Oh. It disappeared out of my house. Yeah, I was more concerned at the time of what he was talking about than I was, because the VCR was kind of incidental and didn't mean a lot to me at the time. Um, when I went back to look at it, to look for it, it had turned up missing. Let me ask you this question. Had you agreed to his uh, wishes to remarry for those reasons? 
I had not agreed or disagreed. I was still concerned. I was still trying to to uh, get information out of him. It was, was he, like was I'm he sorry. still hopeful that you were going to do this? Oh yeah. Then, oh, it, yeah. then he, it isn't likely that if he's still hopeful that you're going to do this, something that that would happen to to him, uh, so you and the kids would be taken care of. It isn't likely that he would go out and commit suicide, still no. being hopeful that you would do this. No, and we had and several times um, people don't realize there have been several incidences where we had attempted to reestablish the marriage. Um, in fact, I had been with him just three weeks prior to that um, at an award assembly, and he introduced me as his wife. Um, which I obviously didn't dispute too much. Nobody saw a scene there or anything. So, oh no, we're divorced. With it, no, we were on good terms. Um, uh, the reasons for the divorce were um, just just a little different than people expect them to be. Well, somebody wouldn't commit suicide if they hadn't done their paperwork in advance, especially a police officer. Yeah, very meticulous. And here was another thing, uh, especially if he was intent on committing suicide. There were lots of things that could have been taken care of easily without the aid of life insurance policies and such. Nothing was taken care of. I lost my home, went bankrupt, you name it. Uh, he knew something was coming fast, okay, faster than he could deal with it. And I think that was why he was so concerned about the life insurance policy. If this man was getting ready to commit suicide, there wouldn't have been a thing out of place. Okay, do, do, do the children get any of his pension benefits? No. Well, that's unusual. Well, he was only on the force for seven years. Well, still, that's, uh, I, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not sure how that works anymore, but it used to be that the, the officer's children, even, even in, a, in a, uh, a divorce situation, still got benefits. Well, I, I can tell you that the children were not, were not paid anything. They were, in fact, it was very obvious the police department was very unconcerned with the children, um, more concerned with trying to uh, promote a story that simply wasn't true, such as um, uh, he was a distraught officer, was divorced, wasn't able to see his kids, uh, you know, all kinds of things that, that simply weren't true. Um, and I didn't. I was very confused at the time why they were doing that. It was it was all a shock to me. I mean, I got bombarded pretty quickly, and so it was pretty overwhelming. Um, I knew that there was something going on, but I had no idea that. Uh, God, how do I say that? That it was so critical. I knew, but I didn't expect what happened. It just happened all too fast. How old are the kids now? Uh, they were four and two at the time of his death. Um, they're six and four now. Okay. So now, during this time, we're talking about a, about a 12-month span here. Terry mm -hmm. was being called into headquarters. He was being told to get off the case. He was being threatened by his own people. Oh, yeah. Uh, can you tell us, elaborate a little bit on that, of what was really going on there? Well, um, there were some very other obvious statements, like Terry had said that um, if it were not for the fact that he was pictured in many pictures worldwide, uh, running from the building, saving people, that they would have said he was not even there on the site. I think what initially got him started into it was, uh, yes, he did see some people that shouldn't have been there, too quickly, because Terry was there within 30 seconds to a minute after the bomb blasted. Um, but initially they were trying to discredit people that were down there, and there was another officer that uh, that had helped Terry pull some people out of the building, and they were trying to deny he was down there, which was the first reason why Terry had attempted to get a copy of his report, was to prove this other officer had been down there too. Um, he started saying that there were officers that were not at the site that were being uh, recognized as heroes. Um, just you know, there was all kinds of conflicting information that he was having a problem with. So I believe that he was looking into this. Um, uh, he just made too much of a deal of uh, like there was supposed to be an officer that went to go visit President Clinton in behalf of OCPD. He said adamantly she wasn't even there. Um, you know, there was a lot of this going on. I don't think he told me the specific parts, but it was very obvious because he became very secretive during that time. Um, entire attitude change. I, I have never witnessed this, and like I said, he'd been on the force for about seven years. So, you know, you get kind of used to the police mentality after a while. But this was nothing I'd ever, I'd ever encountered with him before. Um, but yes, uh, what I was told about a year afterwards, when I had a private investigator look into it, is that Terry had had. Uh, film footage, pictures, which I, I do support that belief because Terry uh, carried a camcorder, cameras, you name it, in the back of his vehicle. Most likely that he did take pictures and uh, did document what he saw and probably was following up on it. Um, there was lots of strange... Our cars were coming up vandalized. 
the house was coming up vandalized. He and I both were coming up on four sets of flats, like several times. I mean, we had people put nails in our tires, breaking our back windows. Just strange, bizarre little things that I wouldn't have, you know, put in place with the bombing as any kind of retaliatory activity. But after his death, it continued, okay? Um, Terry kept saying during the year that we had been being monitored by the police department. I didn't understand why anybody would be monitoring him. And you have to bear in mind that, you know, what I know at this point, I did not know at the time it was occurring. Okay, now, um, obviously, both of your phones were tapped because you had some messages on your answering machine that shouldn't have been there? Right, that happened after the after his death. Messages like what? Well, <laughs> this is really odd, but it would be... Uh, it would be recorded messages of me either having a phone conversation or me having a conversation with another individual in person. Someone would have taped it um, and would play it back to me. Somebody so was, in other words, if you if you were standing on the corner in front of Walmart talking to someone, uh, you might have a first-hand uh, tape of that played back onto your machine. Exactly. Yes, and I had that happen. It is. It's it's an invasion uh, on you. Uh, you realize that you're not so you're not so safe. Well, they were <laughs> trying, and, that and that's what they were trying to tell you by saying, "Look at what we can do without you even knowing it." So you better watch out. Right. See, and another thing, I don't know if Craig had mentioned this, but it was just uh, the first 24 to 48 hours after his death that I demanded to speak to Chief Gonzalez because I was being uh, I was being lied to about uh, the wounds to Terry's body. They simply told me he had shot himself in the head. And I did not get a call until May 9th. They didn't even call me and let me know that he was that he was deceased. Okay. Okay, now what day was it uh, that he supposedly was deceased? May 8th. May 8th. And you didn't know till the next day. I didn't know till the next day. His sister had been out looking for him all day. They had her involved in it. Um, they, they never contacted me. The only way I knew is that family finally called me the next day. The mother of his children yeah. wasn't even told. Uh, we're going to take a break just a second. I want to tell people who they're listening to in case they just tuned in. We're talking with Tanya Yakey. Her husband, Terry Yakey, was on the Oklahoma City Police Department, and as I understand it, Tanya, you tell me if I'm wrong, he was the first Oklahoma City police officer in the building after the explosion. Within, what do you say? A minute? Within a minute. Within a minute after the explosion. He turned up dead in a field outside of Oklahoma City. Uh, what part? A year later. Well, two and a half miles west of El Reno Reformatory is what the death certificate says. Okay. And we're talking with Tanya Yankee. We'll be back. Tanya, hang on. Take a, we'll take about a minute break uh, in case you have to go get a drink of water or something, and we'll be right back. Okay. in the morning. We're talking with uh, Tanya Yankee in Oklahoma City. Are you in Oklahoma? I suppose? Yes, I am. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you even wanted to tell where you were. So, yeah, uh, I'm still in Oklahoma City. <laughs> it's no big secret where I am. Well, probably everybody else knows. <laughs> everybody else knows. This is the first time Tanya's been able to tell her story on Oklahoma radio. Uh, where was this other uh, interview? Was it uh, national? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I've done several talk shows that were aired more out of uh, western states, uh, out towards the California area. I see. Okay. Now... Craig, go ahead. Okay, now... Craig Roberts is with us, by the way. No, I'm not. You're not? No, I'm never here. <laughs> He's on tape. I am I am uh, uh, Joe Schmuckatelli, and I, I, uh, I work for Ken Rank. I, I, I guard his house when he makes phone calls to Arkansas. You're making me feel awfully vulnerable here. <laughs> Good, because everybody needs to be a little bit paranoid, Ken. All right. No one can say we don't have a sense of humor around here at uh, KGB headquarters, you know. Um, okay, now, Tanya, to you know, get back to the, to the more serious stuff here. On the scene, uh, well, I, w- I want to take this chronologically. Now, over the period of this year, Terry was called in several times, and various people in the chain of command pretty much counseled him or threatened him. To, you know, what levels are we talking about here? What what uh, what ranks, what positions did these people hold that were telling him to get off the case? Um, I can tell you specific people on that. One was Lieutenant Joanne Randall, the main supervisor. Um, then there was Major Steve Upchurch, and then it went through to Sam Gonzalez himself. I know Terry wound up in Sam Gonzalez's office so many times in that year because of what he was doing with the bombing. Um, and uh, probably the orders came directly from him. 
Uh, is he still there? No. He, he retired. Gone. He's retired. Now, how long ago did he retire? Oh, gosh. Um... I want to say it was maybe about six months. I don't think it's been a year since Sam's retired, but it's been within the year, I'll say that. Yeah, now, he, he was the chief at the time of the, of the bombing, and he also has some other uh, laurels on him uh, that we'll get into when we go to the scene of the crime. Uh, and, and Upchurch is who? Now, Joanne Randall was Terry's lieutenant. Yes. And who is Steve Upchurch? Steve Upchurch was basically his upline. That's... Um, Lieutenant Randall, supervisor. Um, Captain Major. 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 Okay. Major and now, now you had a chaplain involved in this, didn't you? Yes, we did. And what was his name? Chaplain Jack Poe. Okay. And what was his part? Well, uh, apparently, all the officers that had been down at the site were required to speak to the chaplain, and uh, Terry was under the impression that. Uh, whatever his conversations with the chaplain was, because of the nature of his position, uh, were confidential. Um, apparently they weren't, <laughs> because everything that was stated, and I think Terry had been very honest with Chaplain Poe. Um, anything that he saw, what he felt about it, he shared with him. And it is my understanding that a report was written up on anything that Terry and several other officers had to say. And I don't want to identify who any of those other officers were. Right. So, um, Chaplain Poe had intimate knowledge, apparently, of, uh, of what Terry had seen as well. Okay, now, now some of the things that he may have seen, you know, uh, we're, we're talking about, we're going to have to speculate a little bit, but uh, we had reports of what was supposedly seen by various people in the building that had gone inside was there was at least one, if not two, large pits in the building where explosives had gone off inside and blown down and up. Right. And uh, one of them went through, like, the parkade area and took out a lot of reinforced concrete. And I've had several uh, people that were inside the building tell me they saw the same thing. They called that the pit. They weren't, they weren't describing that little bitty crater out front. They were talking about a big hole. Right. And uh, now we also had, um, uh, of course, Jane Graham talks about these these guys that she saw putting some kind of putty material on the columns, and not all the columns went down, so we can assume there's possibility he saw some of this stuff still on columns that did not go off. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, this we're just speculating here. As an investigator, this is what I would, the questions I would ask and go and try to find the, the answers to. And uh, possibly explosives still in the building. I've heard several people say that, but the problem is the people I've, in, I've, I've uh, interviewed uh, during the investigation and afterwards when I was involved, uh, they didn't really know anything about explosives, and they wouldn't know a tow missile from a torpedo. Uh, so, you know, we, we hear that, well, this is what it was, and then when I say, well, describe it, well, then it doesn't fit what they said with what it was. They were just told that was what it was by somebody else that didn't know. So that's that's kind of a really gray area. You know, if somebody said, well, I, I was in the military, I was an engineer, and I saw five boxes of C4, then I would, I would say, gee, that's a good sighting. You know, it's almost like uh, talking about UFOs. You know, what did you see? Well, I saw a light in the sky, you know. Uh, so it's we don't know exactly what he saw, but he saw something that really scared him, really bothered him. And when he came out, he talked to people that, should, like you said, shouldn't have been there and were. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he had he had knowledge that became dangerous to political figures. He had knowledge, you know. We've got the government's main thing is we didn't know about it, and there was only two people involved. I mean, that's they're sticking to that no matter what. Right. And if you if you have paid attention to the storyline that they have printed on Terry. Most of it was this reluctant hero, okay? Mm -hmm. And the reluctance was in that he knew that there was more going on, but they were trying to cover it up. He didn't want to be seen as a hero. He didn't want to be even associated with it. The, the awards, the recognition, it disturbed him a lot because he felt if anybody uh, could be called a hero that hadn't even been down there, had sat on the sidelines and not even gone in the building and helped anybody, and I'm talking police officers. I'm talking agents. He made that statement to me on several occasions. Uh, just really disgusted with it all and um, resented being told to write another report. He saw whatever he saw, which he did not share that part with me, but he resented being told to clean up his report. He felt like he was lying. Okay. Let's uh, let's do something. As, as a writer, I, I kind of have a tendency to want to put things, uh, skip to areas, and then get back so that the, the reader or the listener can get a full picture of what we're really dealing with here. So what I want to do here, I want to read something out of an article that appeared in the Tulsa paper about uh, uh, Terry's uh, death, and then I want to skip to the scene. Let's talk about what we really found out there. Let's talk about the medical examiner's drawings and what happened afterwards. Then we can come back and kind of fill in some gaps. Sure. First, what the... the 
this is a uh, this is out of Tulsa World, and it said, "Friend, uh, guilt may have led to officer's death." And it talks about uh, a reluctant hero of the Oklahoma City bombing who uh, who took his own life was racked with guilt because an injury kept him from rescuing more victims. His closest friend said Friday. The, this is a quote. The federal building claimed 169 lives. A tearful Jim, Officer Jim Ramsey said, it just got another one. Now, now who's Jim Ramsey? Oh, boy, you're going to open up a can of worms. Well, let's, let's try to keep Ramsey. it short. <laughs> I'm sorry, what did you say? Let's, let's try to keep it short because I want to go into the next point here. Sure. Uh, Mr. Ramsey is another police officer. I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that this man was not Terry's friend. They had a very hostile relationship at the time. Um... Racked with guilt is just totally untrue. Terry was not racked with guilt over his injury received. He was racked with guilt over what he was not being allowed to say. So this AP story that he was his closest friend already is, is lying in the first two paragraphs. Flat out. Okay. Then it goes on to says, Sergeant Terrence Yankee, 30, was found Wednesday in a field near his hometown of El Reno. He had apparently tried tried to slide, uh, slit his wrist, then shot himself to death. I want the listeners to pay attention here. There's the two points they're trying to make, that he slid his wrist and he shot himself to death just three days before he was to have received the Department's Medal of Valor. Ramsey and Yankee were among the first Oklahoma City police officers to reach the scene of the bombing to kill 168 people and so on and so forth. Now, let's go to the scene now that we've said that. Let's jump to the scene and let's see what we find there. Why don't you take it from uh, when they found his car and they started looking. Uh, and, and, and when did they find out he was an Oklahoma City policeman? We're talking about the Canadian County Sheriff's Office here? Uh, yes. Um, that the, the whole story is in conflict, Craig. You might even be better to talk about that part than I am. Um, I know that his body was found earlier than what they stated it was. Um, Canadian County, I think... Uh, it was around 1 or 1.30 that the, they located the vehicle again and the body out there. I'm not sure. I don't want to get into specifics that I don't know about because I'm getting secondhand information on that. Okay. Um, but I do know the body was found a lot earlier than that. Now, this is 1.30 in the afternoon? Yes. Of the next day after he disappeared? No. This is the 8th. This is on the 8th. Now, the now, I understand that what he did is he, he, he talked to some friend and says, I've got to take, take all these records and all this stuff, and I'm going to hide them out of town. I'll be leaving town. I'll see you later. Mm-hmm. But I have to talk by the police department first because they want to chew me out again, basically just you know cutting to the chase here. Then he, he called again and said that he was being followed, mm-hmm. and he had to shake the people following him. And did, did he describe them as, what did you say, feds? Yes. Okay. He says, feds are following me. I've got to shake them, and then I'll see you later. And he never came back. His, and, and that was on what day? That was the morning of the 8th. Morning of the 8th. And so in the afternoon they found him? Early afternoon. Of that day? Of that day. Oh, okay. Quick finding, considering the location, being out at Fort Reno in a field. Um, <laughs> I thought they did uh, some impressive investigative work there. Well, in police work, we would assume that that came from an anonymous informant calling a dispatcher and saying there's a dead guy in a field. Yeah. And I have heard that that was what occurred, though nobody's messing up. Okay. Um yeah, and the the, blo- the the car itself was filled with so much blood that uh, apparently when they did open the doors, it just spilled out all over the place. Uh, it was on the driver's side, the passenger side, in the back of the car, uh, had even filtered down into the cracks of the window, just an enormous amount of blood. So somebody was um, uh, trying to put up a struggle. Yes. Okay, now, that can't be because I'm looking at the... Uh, uh, the medical examiner's drawing here, Tanya, and it says superficial cuts on the wrist. Superficial means very shallow. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that, right? I mean, this, this, is, this gets more bizarre, folks. I mean, this, this really gets bizarre. Okay, so take it from there. The car had the blood in it, and then what happened? Right. Um, there was uh, so much blood at the car, but at the scene of where his body was actually found, there was very little blood. Okay. Um, and, of course, I, I don't know if they know that his wrists were slit, his uh, upper arms at the bend of the elbow were slit, um, and then, of course, his jugular was slit in two different places, in addition to the angle shot of the uh, gunshot wound through the head. Okay, now, what kind of gun did they find at the scene? They will not state what type of gun. Okay, now... Because I... it was not his gun. Well, now, now the way I get the story here recently is, and I won't, I won't say the source, but you know who it is, yes. is that, uh, and I didn't know this until the last couple of days, is there was no gun found at the scene for at least an hour as the, as the deputies, you know, and, and I guess the Reno police were searching the area. Mm-hmm. And obviously they were very incompetent because when the, the FBI <laughs> showed up later, they found one within a couple of minutes. 
Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. All right. It sounds like a Vince Foster deal to me. Uh, was this a car or a truck? No, it was a car. Car. <clears throat> it was a car. How, how, how tall a man was Terry? Uh, Terry stood about uh, almost six three. Six three. So pounds. you've seen him in that? Have you seen him in that very car before? Sure. Uh, where does his head come to on the? Uh, as far as how much headroom does he have above? Uh, Not a whole lot. <laughs> what, what kind of car was it? It was a uh, probe, Ford probe. Ford Probe. So, so we got we got the Jolly Green Giant and the Ford Probe. Yeah, and he okay. kind of liked it. <laughs> okay. So his head but came yeah. within his head came within what two inches of the top, the roof. Yes. When he drove. Yes. He he was quite hulking in this small car. I, I'm making that point for a reason. So go ahead. Uh, okay, where do we want to continue from here on this? Uh, you uh, said there was blood, uh, a lot of blood found in the car, but none found at the scene outside of the car. Yes, yeah. and that's the scene, correct. The scene is exactly how far from the car. The scene was a mile and a half from okay. the vehicle. Now, to get to that area, you had to go through a, uh, a field, a ditch, and under a fence? Yeah, it was. Uh, I went out and I looked at the area. Um, it is barbed wire fence all around it, and I can tell you from uh, just attempting to uh, move the barbed wire, it's pretty sturdy, uh, which would have been really difficult for Terry to have done that, go through the barbed wire fence while he was cut up and bleeding, which there's no blood at that point either. There's no, there was no blood around that area. There was not um, a trail of blood from the vehicle no to anywhere. No trail of blood. Okay, now, no. now the, the angle of the gunshot was from the top right uh, above, above the eye line of the right temple down through the left cheek. Right. It was a contact wound but left no powder burns, and the exit wound was as small as the entry wound, which shows a subsonic bullet of small caliber, possibly a thirty two. And yet Terry's normal service weapon was, what, a 9mm Glock? 9mm Glock. So, uh, you know, this does not compute already. And and now now let's jump ahead uh, beyond that a little bit, so you know, because we have to capitalize on our, on our time here. Sure. Um, now, Terry was not taken to the medical examiner's office. The medical examiner came to the scene, is that correct? That is correct. And he did his drawings from what he saw at the scene. That is correct. But he left off a couple of things. He left off uh, some rope burns on the neck and some handcuff marks on the hands? Yes. Okay. And, and, the, on, the, and on the ankles. On the ankles? Yes, there were some rope burns on the ankles. Okay, so he's he's trussed up and thrown over a fence and drug out in this field. Obviously, drug, we know that. Why? Because you found out later, uh, totally by accident, mm -hmm. that there were some mud and grass in the wounds. Yes. Why don't you tell us about that? And tell us how superficial these cut marks were. Oh, well, and um, actually, I'm, I'm correct on something. I found out by accident twice. Oh. They came from two sources. Okay. And then there was an additional third one that had told me his body had been drugged from one location to another and about there being no blood at the scene. And that person was a law enforcement officer. Um, uh, let me back up here. Let me keep me in line. That's where the okay. question was. I wanted to make sure to, to put that in there. Okay. Now, he was examined at the scene. and Examined at the scene. And uh, the Chief Gonzalez came out by helicopter along with an FBI guy. Who was that? Bob Ricks. Bob Ricks, who's now the head of the Department of Public Safety here in Oklahoma, appointed by Frank Keating. Right. Okay, now, they show up, and within, how long was it before all these FBI agents came in and took over the scene? Oh, um, from what I'm told, almost immediately. Um, as soon as they got there, um, the, El, the El Reno and Canadian County sheriffs were uh, shooed off the scene, uh, practically escorted, and uh, I, I was told about nine vehicles of uh, federal agents came in. Um, but but now, wait a minute. The, the, the deputies didn't find a gun, and they'd been there about an hour or more. Yes, they had, and I was told there was almost 30, 30 police officers look out there combing the area for a gun. Found none. Okay. Didn't even find a knife. So when did the gun come into scene? Immediately, like five minutes within uh, the other agents coming on the scene. Suddenly it was, uh, oh, here it is. Y'all just missed it. <laughs> uh -huh. But we still don't know what kind it was, and no one can see it. No. Okay. Do you know who it was that, that actually said that or something else? Akin to that, here it is. You've missed it. Who actually said? No, that? I don't know the actual person. Do you know it was a was it was a ATF or FBI? No, I do not know that uh, either. But I do know uh, at least. Let me put it this way: um, I have been told that there were some ATF at the scene, mm -hmm. and well, I won't state which particular ones that was. But I have been. Of course, told the person who found it was not necessarily the person who could have uh, thrown it out there. No, of course not. That would never happen. Not in the real <laughs> world, okay? Okay, now now the body is taken not to the examiner's office, but to where? Uh, to Pollard Funeral Home. Okay, and what happens there? Um, his body was um, stitched up, cleaned up, 
um, you know, makeup uh, put onto it. Um, and mind you, the family was totally unaware that the body had ever made a trip to Pollard Funeral Home. It was supposed to go to Rush Warren Funeral Home in Watonga. Okay, now, uh, no autopsy was done to medical. This is we're, t we're talking a police officer out of Oklahoma City that generates all this all this attention, and but he doesn't even go to the medical examiner's office. There's no medical examination done other than, than the sketches, and there's no autopsy. Right. Okay, so he goes to a funeral home instead where they stitch up these superficial wounds. Why'd they do that? Uh, you got me. <laughs> Why was the OSBI not involved in this at all? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear. OSBI, why were they not involved in well, this? Well, I don't know that they weren't. Oh, I see, okay. So, um... Well, you haven't checked any of their records to find out why he went to... Well, my, my, OSBI well they... gauge, uh, my OSBI contact said that they, they didn't even know about it until afterwards. Oh, really? Yeah, it was on federal property. That's the problem. So right. they were probably never even called in. In fact, by then, they didn't want anybody there. Isn't that odd that it would be on federal property? Yeah. And especially, oh, yes. and now, now, Tanya, Terry didn't like this area, did he? No, he did not. We lived in that area. Terry grew up in that area. Um, I, I remember him at one point in time saying that lots of uh, bad things went on over there. Um, it's right across from the prison. The federal government owns all that land. Um, he wouldn't have been caught. <laughs> oh, excuse me. I was getting ready to say he wouldn't be caught dead there, but I guess he was. Um, but... Uh, this, this would not have been some place he would have gone. It, he was no actually superstitious about this place yes, ever since he was. he was a child. Yes, he was. Yeah, um, so so it would be it would be frightening for him to even be there. Yeah. So uh, if somebody knew that, that would be a place they would want to take him to interrogate him. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, if anybody that knew anything about him would know Terry had been very vocal about that place before. Okay, so and, and we found out that one of the reasons that uh, uh, these wounds were stitched up is because they couldn't even use embalming fluid on him because the wounds were so deep? Oh, actually, that was correct, Craig. Yes, that is right. Okay, so that means the superficial notations on the medical examiner's drawings are not correct. Right. Okay, so now we've got all these cut wounds, which would any, any few of them would have been fatal. And then we have this gunshot wound that goes the wrong direction through the head. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we find out all about, uh, you know, none of, none of the scene shows up. I'll tell you what I did last night is I had a friend of mine, a Tulsa police detective I can't name, mm -hmm. came by. I showed him my case file on this. Mm -hmm. And he read it. And he looked at me and he said, what is this? I said, hey, here's the, here's the letter from the chief of police in Oklahoma City when I asked him to reopen the case and, you know, gave him all the information. This is the letter. And he read that. And I'll, I'll read that paragraph right now. This is from Chief M.T. Barry who replaced Gonzalez. And it says, I have Okay, hang on just a second. Let me, uh, we're, we're taping this show, uh, Tony. Uh, well, we're probably being taped by a lot of places, Ken. We can just order one from the... That, yeah. That's yeah. probably true, but they won't give us one. Yeah. Let, let me jump in something here really quickly. Um, I, I want to back up to the fact that I had gone to go visit with Chief Samuel Gonzalez uh, about 24 hours after uh, I was aware that he was dead. Um, and Chief Gonzalez and me, we didn't quite see eye to eye <laughs> on the nature of his death. And... Uh, I was I was very put off by the fact that Gonzalez never expressed any uh, concern that Terry was deceased now. Um, I told him that I I was concerned about why they would lie to me about the wrist splitting and the upper arms being slit and the throat being cut. That information was totally not given to me. And I had to call back because I got a call from a police dispatcher who I won't identify that tipped me off that his body was badly beaten and there were these additional wounds rather than just a gunshot wound. Gonzalez denied knowledge of any of those cuts, especially the neck cut. And I actually think he was just surprised that I, I knew it already. Um, and the conversation got a little bit menacing and intimidating uh, right at the end when I told him that it was very obvious that his opinion why Terry was dead and my opinion differed. Mind you, I didn't even know why at the time, but I just knew that we were not going to agree on a, on a suicide. But from the very beginning, Gonzalez uh, acted as, the, he did not act as though he was uh, remorseful or sorry to, no. uh, to talk to you and say, oh, Tanya, we're sorry, I don't know what to say, I'm sorry that this happened, you know, okay. none of that. Nothing. That rhetoric was not even there. No, did yeah. not even exist. I would have, That's odd. even if I had contradicted him, I would. Have, I was surprised that he did not say, "I'm very sorry you feel that way," or you know, Terry was a good officer. You know, he'll be sorely missed. None of that. Absolutely not. He wanted me to believe that it was marital problems that he was distraught over, and he denied that Terry was having any problems at work. Flat out denied, which I knew was was untrue, and I let him know that I knew that was untrue. Um, and as I got up to leave, in fact, the last question he asked me when I made that statement that we differed on our opinions, he said, well, why do you think Terry's dead?
Okay, he wants to find out what you think or no. Exactly. Oh. And there was such a degree of menace in his tone, I got up, I left his office. I thanked him for his time, and I left. From that point on, I began being followed by marked, unmarked cars, very blatant intimidation. That's when the phone, uh, the, the tapping of the phone started, the uh, tapings that they would play back to me. All this started immediately after I left Gonzalez's office. Now, now normally what would happen? In, the, in this type of a case, had it been a heads-up legitimate thing, is the police department would have sent the chaplain and probably even the chief out to your house because you you are the mother of his children, even yeah. if you're divorced, and said, we got really bad news, blah, 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 and we'll help you any way we can, and the FOP would get a hold of you, and they have people who deal with victims and survivors that come out, and they take you under their arm as part of the family, and this is, this I've seen this happen many times in 26 years that I was an officer, and you don't treat people that way in the department, but they were intimidating you and trying to, to get you to, to totally ignore whatever it was that Terry knew or what went on the day of the bombing. Now, um, this is totally out of character for what should have happened and, and, and indeed did not happen. And then, uh, just, just to cut to the chase here, I write, write this letter that's three pages long outlining everything we've talked about. You've read the letter. Mm-hmm. And the, the letter I get back is very brief, and he wouldn't answer any of my questions. Uh, this is from the Chief of Police, Oklahoma City, dated uh, June 19th. It says, I have reviewed the investigative records surrounding the death of Officer Terrence Shakey. I, along with the on-scene investigators, believe that Terrence Shakey's death was nothing more than a tragic suicide of a police officer. He ignored all the questions of the downward angle of the shot, no gun at the scene, uh, all the cuts, the, the differences from what the funeral home director said versus the medical examiner's drawings. He ignored all the whole page of, of, of questions I answered and just put this out as a PR deal. So I gave him a chance. I gave him a heads-up, honest, legitimate chance to answer the concerns and reopen the investigation for the honor of his police department. Now, a lot of people have to understand, also, there are police officers in Oklahoma City who still to this day are quietly doing what they can to investigate this and put the pieces together, along with citizens and and victims, and, and so they have a group, is that correct? Yes, they do. And uh, they, do they have a name for this group? Well, um... Some of the group are associated with uh, Heroes of the Heart, but the Heroes of the Heart is not actually the group investigating, if I could say that, you understand. Okay. Um, but there are some members from that group because they were also victims and they were down there also when Terry was. Well, I got a name for them. They could call themselves the Grassy Knoll Observers. <laughs> you know, or, or the Baker Street Irregular, something like that. But, uh, yeah, there are. I've talked to some of the officers, you know, in Tulsa. I was talking to our, my friend, uh, the detective last night here from Tulsa PD, and we said, you know, if this happened in Tulsa, we'd have 20 25 to 50 officers at the lodge within 24 hours forming our own ad hoc investigation committee and not worry about the chief's opinion or anything else. And by gosh, if anybody got in the way over an officer's death here, we'd steamroller them. And why don't they do that in Oklahoma City? Well, evidently, the intimidation factor down there is so much. It's almost as if somebody got caught with their hands dirty by internal investigations and all of his friends bailed out and ran away. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a, that's you know, it's it's a different psychology in that point. Everybody's looking out for themselves. So I mean, there must be a lot of fear in that police department for these guys to let that go by without investigating a brother officer's death. Well, and I think the uh, the overkill to Terry, his, uh, the the body itself, uh, was done specifically to send that message out to other people that would get involved. So I can understand the fear, uh, but at the same time, uh, it's difficult for me to know that other officers are turning their head to it and, and don't want to do anything about it. And that's not all of them, but there are a lot of them that just want to stay clear of it. They're what about Charles there. Key? Has he had anything to do with this? I'm sorry? Charles yes. Key, has he had any involvement in this at all? Or? Um, I have spoken with Charles Key. I have spoken with Charles Key investigators for the grand jury, but I have not been called. Hmm. But, the, but, the, but the Yankee case has been presented before the grand jury, yes. right? Okay. Um, well, you know, it's it's just incredible that this can go on in this day and age. Not just Terry's not the only one here. We've got other deaths surrounding the Oklahoma City bombing. We've got Dr. Charles Chumley who went down in a, in a very strange plane crash in Texas, and he was one of the first doctors that was there, and he refused to cooperate with some of the government requests. We've got uh, uh, one of the dancers here at in Tulsa uh, from uh, one of the local uh, uh, dance like the strip club, who. They were on national TV as seen. Um, uh, Timothy McVeigh and Bressie and all these other people at there. Her name was Sean, uh, Sean Tia, and she was found suicided, you know, or dead, uh, is declared suicide here. But there was, you know, she supposedly, and I saw the crime scene picture, she supposedly had uh, t- taken an overdose of drugs because she had a big bad drug, drug problem, 
and but yet there was handprints of blood on the wall of her apartment. Now I don't know how you do that with an overdose of drugs, but anyway, then we had uh, uh, several others that that have, that have turned up dead since then, and you know a higher ratio than you normally would expect. Quite similar to the to the Kennedy assassination, where the witnesses began dropping like flies. Now. Uh, I heard uh, your friend, uh, uh, you, you know who we're talking about, tell me the other day they had like 28 so far that were very suspicious. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yes, there's a list out here. I know off the top of my head of about eight. <laughs> eight to ten. Right off the top of my head, I'm saying. Uh, I was not even familiar with the one that you just stated. That was that was new information to me. So, um, But I'll tell you right now that Terry, uh, Terry and Dr. Chumley were definitely connected. They had... Uh, uh, been involved together, had been going over pictures, information on the bombing, and that that has been uh, denied on several occasions. In fact, Gonzalez was probably one of the most verbal that no one could prove that Terry and Chumley had had any connection. But I'll tell you this, and this information just came to me yesterday, um, and I'm, I'm working on getting this substantiated, but apparently Terry and Dr. Chumley had a joint uh, safety deposit box. And I will not state where, but this information did come to me yesterday. I'll say that again. A joint safety deposit box at a local Terry, downtown bank. And Terry Yakey and, and Dr. Chumley, who was one of the first doctors on the scene who died in a plane crash very mysteriously. And I talked to the NTSB investigators on it, and they said, there's nothing wrong with this airplane. Other than it was all bent up and broken whole, but I mean, they couldn't find a mechanical reason for the airplane to come down from 6,000 feet straight down into a cabbage field in Shamrock, Texas, you know. Well, now, how odd is that, Tanya, that they would share a safety deposit? Very odd. Um, and another thing was that people had tried to say Terry and Chumley didn't even know each other. Uh, Chumley had worked on Terry's back uh, several years ago. I know they had met each other prior to the bombing, but for them to have a uh, relationship to where they would have a safety deposit box together? No. And that they both would turn up dead? And that uh, they both had some knowledge that perhaps uh, that nobody else had? It sounds like to me that they might have gotten together and gotten a safety deposit box to plant or to put some of that, uh, not plant, that's a bad word, but to put some of that uh, uh, possible evidence in safekeeping. Exactly. But has it never turned up? Well, uh, the deposit box um, was closed right after Terry's death. By whom? I do not know. I haven't gotten that verified yet. Well, Working could, on it. How could anybody do that other than those two or their immediate family? Uh, that's still that's still the question here. But uh, right, like right. I said, this information just came to me yesterday. Someone and, just uh, called and said that uh, untold, Unsolved Mysteries uh, uh, investigated events foster case. Uh, have you ever talked to anybody about that uh, from Unsolved Mysteries? Maybe they would be interested in this case? No, actually I haven't. Um, the first two years of Terry's death, I got a complete shutout by media. Uh, anyone uh, even remotely associated seemed to just back off me totally. Um, I tried to hire attorneys. Um, in fact, one attorney told me if I should drop it, uh, it'd be best for me and my family just to leave it alone. Let me tell you, it's pretty bad if you can't hire an attorney. <laughs> Not in this state. Um, that's that's been very difficult. And you've got them standing on the side of the road saying we'll sue for food. You know that uh, there's bound to be somebody wanting to take that case. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Is there a possibility? What about that, uh, Craig? Would that would that be a possibility? Then they go to Robert Stack and say, hey, you know, how about? Uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. You know, but national media being what it is, this is one of those stories that it could. They, what they do is they run it up the flagpole. You know. Mm -hmm. And when it got up to New York City at the, at the head headquarters of whatever network, um, the executives then checked things out with the powers that be before they broadcast it. We know that because of the uh, the, the Medusa file would, could not be could not be printed in, in, in uh, New York City through the main houses, and I had to form my own publishing company because I was told that they had people in TV stations, radio stations, and and uh, publishing houses that made sure certain information that they didn't like that uh, was uh, politically uh, not viable would uh, never see never see the light of day. So whether they would take that or not, uh, of course they did Vince Foster. So who knows? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a sh it's worth a shot. Yeah, and Tanya, do you find yourself uh, your life running parallel with uh, Karen Silkwood in some ways, and some of the problems that she occurred? Well, yes, I guess I guess you could say that. Um, my life certainly hasn't been uh, quiet for the last two years. Um, haven't had a lot of peace, and it's, it's it's very difficult to live kind of constantly. You know, in that concern of, am I being followed? Am I being monitored? You know, after a while, you just kind of lose your fear and you, <laughs> you quit now, worrying about it. So when's much. the last time you had any of those strange phone calls or threats? Uh, okay. 
Um, I've received a few threatening phone calls um, this year, within the last few months, but they're very vague, uh, non-specific phone calls, very hard to go to police or anybody in authority about. Um, the phone calls, as far as the taped uh, messages, probably stopped around March uh, of this year. I haven't received one since. Now, while Terry was in, uh, on the police department for seven years? Seven years, almost eight. Uh-huh. Uh, that, that's a very tight-knit group. Uh, uh, you must have become friends with some other officers' wives, family. There, there were officers' wives that I knew. Um, uh, not, you know, you would think that you would have a closer-knit relationship with some of them, mm -hmm. uh, but it seems like... <sighs> I, I don't know that it's not as close knit maybe as the Tulsa PD is. I, I've heard this before. Um, they're, they're just a little more strange, and you have to also remember that there was uh, the interracial factor. Uh, Terry's black man, I'm a Hispanic woman. Um, it wasn't highly looked upon in the department the fact that it was an interracial marriage. So we had a limited scope of people that we hung out. Terry didn't just um, didn't just have everybody hanging out. He, he's a very private person. So, so we, I knew other officers and their wives, but on a real uh, friends level, there weren't a whole lot of them that I befriended really intimately. Were, so. did, were you married after he was on the department, or was he on the department when you were married? Uh, no, we were married before he got on the department. Before he got on there. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, well, nor normally, you know, Ken, you, you talked about, uh, you know, what's happened. and the, the, What we found out when we were investigating the Kennedy deaths was those people who were the most outspoken and vocal, like Tanya, were the ones that survived. Those that didn't talk, that knew things, that, that were a threat, they eliminated before they could talk, usually before one of the Washington investigations, like the Senate and Church Committee and so on. But what they'll do now is, uh, on Tanya, they've already done some of it, they, they intimidate you first, then they threaten you, and then if that doesn't work, uh, you know, this is if you're high profile, they do, they try to discredit you and debunk you. Oh, you're a nutcase. Oh, you're, you know, you're you're wild and crazy. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't have all the facts. You're emotionally disturbed and blah, blah, blah. Now, uh, last last time I checked, I heard I was fragile. <laughs> oh, fragile. Okay. Fragile. All right. So is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Never, never been described as fragile in my life. Well, you're one of the bravest ladies I've ever run into, I'll guarantee, because I've been interviewed a lot of uh, victims and relatives of victims, and, and a lot of times they're, they're terrified to even talk to anybody. And, and uh, I'm very proud of you. Well, I, I appreciate that. Sometimes I've been concerned about uh, talking about it. I have children, you know. What what better way to pick on somebody than a widow with two little kids, you know? Yeah. Um, well, financially devastates you as well and then puts you out as the person that pushed the man over the edge. Uh, it's all your fault. You know, they, that started, the discrediting started immediately because yeah. why? They already knew me. <laughs> I've been married to Terry long enough that they had a feel for my character and probably knew that if I got wind of it, I probably would be vocal. Well, the so. thing, thing about it is, even if you're not, other people will be now, and it's getting out all over the place, and it's going to be bigger than Vince Foster one of these days, and what's going to happen is they're not going to be... This is a lot of brush fires that they cannot put them all out, and one of them's going to turn into a forest fire on them, and I you know, I wonder why Gonzalez retired and left when he did and left Barry up there. Uh, it, it's almost like he, he may have wanted to avoid this issue. I think so, and very convenient. Um, uh, Mayor... Uh, M.T. Barry, um, he supposedly worked up through the ranks, you know. It makes it look kind of like the good old boy system, uh -huh. but I don't really think so. I think Barry's been set up as a fall guy, to be honest. Well, he doesn't impress me as extremely brilliant in the way he, he returned. Uh, he did not he did not answer my letter in a way that was that would satisfy me. Uh, you know, I mean, he could realize that, that I knew what I was talking about. I did it. I, I wrote the letter to him very well. I made all the points I needed to make, and then he had no way to handle that letter, so he just wrote me a brush off letter, which was extremely stupid. That is not the way you handle that situation. What you try to do is cope with it and explain all of the points I brought up away, so that I'll go away. Mm -hmm. Which obviously that wouldn't happen either. But the and that's what I've challenged them to do. If I'm wrong, show me. Yeah. You know, give me the information that I need to put it to rest. That's never been done, and it won't be because there's no way they could. Do you feel up a murder? Uh, do you feel uh, fear for your life now? Do you fear still? 
Uh, yeah, I, I fear at times. Um, I just kind of have developed the attitude as, you know, if they decide that they're going to get rid of me, there's lots of ways to get rid of people and, you know, be totally blameless. Well, let's put on the record. Uh, are you someone who would ever commit or even contemplate committing suicide? Never. Okay. Not this lifetime or any other. All right. Well, me either. I'm going to put that on the record. By gosh, against my religion, if you present, if you if I was to commit suicide, I'd go to hell, and I'm not going there, so I'm not going to do it, Ken. Okay? That's on the record. So if you find me suicide at some place, it was murder. Yeah. Uh, and neither. Or am I, and, and uh, I, uh, I don't know that I'm going to get very far away from uh, from you from now on either. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, see, I can check I can check pursuers, but you and your big RV, you're doing they can call an RV anyway. Yeah, yeah, I, I did a little investigation yesterday, Tanya. Yeah, I jumped off into something that I didn't know what I was doing, and uh, uh, I wound up. Uh, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> oh, Craig. I, I watched him do it. Oh, Craig. Yeah, well, he, he made some phone calls to some people that probably grew some attention, and I, I think it's good. It's, it's good for the soul. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, you have to have been there and got a T-shirt. Hopefully they say, hopefully they say that's a defunct TV weatherman that doesn't know what he's talking about. Forget that's right. Him. That's what it is. He's just a senile little codger in Tulsa that can't find a job. <laughs> Tanya, we do appreciate uh, we appreciate you coming forth here this morning, and I want you to to understand that you have an open line uh, on this program uh, to uh, to talk about anything you want to talk about. Let us know, and we'll do everything we can. We also have a TV program. We'd be glad to come down to do some TV, uh, some videoing any time. Craig will keep in contact with you, I'm sure. Oh, I and, appreciate uh, that. And as soon as we can figure out how the CIA disrupted our 800 number, we'll get it back up. Yeah, right. That happened to me on the Gunderson show twice. You know that. Yeah, you were cut off, right? Yeah, we were cut off. They totally cut the lines, and there were two lines in the house, and they cut all the lines. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've had that happen before. Tony, we're going to let you go. Yeah. Okay. God, God bless, and I'll see you later. Okay. Bye-bye, Tony.